Uh, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is a three-part series that we began Sunday morning. And I am so excited about tonight's Bible study. And I would encourage you to take notes. I would encourage you to take notes. Um, Sunday morning, the title of the message was, you know, if you see it, you'll never be the same. And we were talking about the King, the ascension of our precious Lord. Sunday night, um, we had a wonderful time um, studying the power needed today, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Hey, the title of tonight's message is, Confident to Communicate the Gospel. Uh, And in parentheses, in our own backyard global community. That's like the longest title you will ever see. Actually, you don't put the whole thing up there, but... Uh, we are living in a very unique time, which we're going to be drawing out in just a little bit. Let me just say that there's a very specific purpose and a very specific prayer for tonight. And that is this, that I pray every single one of us would leave here just super confident, renewed in confidence that the gospel is the power of God and it is the plan of God. We're going to read it just a little bit where Peter stands up amidst his peers. He's in Jerusalem. It's the first message preached post-resurrection after the resurrection of Jesus. It takes place 50 days after the resurrection. And Peter stands up, and we're going to say in a little bit. He said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He's just like boldly proclaiming Jesus. He speaks of the fact that Jesus performed miracles and wonders and signs. He gave his life on the cross. He resurrected. He ascended to heaven. Well, let me just say this. It would be easy to kind of go over that really quickly. I mean, to stand up in a Jewish community, and community is very important in Jewish culture, and to take a stand that Peter did, man, you had to be confident that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, especially uh, believing that He gave his life on the cross, that he actually suffered in the lowest form of execution in the Roman Empire. You had to be absolutely sure that he resurrected, as we're going to be talking about in just a little bit. No Jew would ever buy in to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son, unless they were absolutely convinced of his bodily resurrection. Can I hear a big amen to that, right? But let me just say, Peter was confident. He was confident. And it's my prayer that afresh tonight we would all actually grow in confidence of the gospel based upon experiencing the truth of the person and work of Jesus and this genius plan of God that is in Christ. And that it would then spill over to help other people know who the Lord is. In the context, in the context in which we live, Hey, listen, we're living in a very unique time. We are living in a global community. It's similar to when the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem, which we're going to say in just a little bit. When Peter first preached the gospel 50 days after the resurrection, while it was the epicenter of Jewish identity, that is Jerusalem, um, you had Jews and converts to Judaism coming to Jerusalem from the entire, well, the known world at the time, that very region, people coming from Iran, coming from Egypt. So it was kind of like this international community. You guys, we live in a global community. We are wired technologically, right? But have you ever considered where you live? Have you ever thought how unique it is to live in Los Angeles? LA is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. It's ranked number four in the entire world with people from approximately 140 countries out of 195 countries speaking 86 different languages. And get this, the LA Times reported out of 272 communities in the city of LA. Think of this, 272 communities in the city of LA. West Carson, basically where we are, is ranked, all right, Number three, when it comes to the most diverse uh, community in Los Angeles. So the point is, is like you wake up in the morning, there's a good chance you're going to bump into someone of a total different ethnicity. Right in our own backyard. Gardena is number four, and Carson comes in at number six. All 
of those communities obviously are in the top 10. How many of you are tracking with me so far? Right on that point, right? Okay, so here's, here's what I want to say. Y- you live in L.A.? It's like having an opportunity to preach Christ to the U.N. You know, interestingly, the Pope actually had a chance to address the U.N. And the Pope is a really nice guy, and he's a wonderful humanitarian. But when he addressed the U.N., he did not mention Jesus once. Now, that's not what you see. What what took place 2,000 years ago when Peter was in Jerusalem when he's speaking to a, quote, international community on Pentecost. Uh, He was a part of a minority, but he's clearly way ahead of his time, including all those who are following Jesus. And it's important to bring a picture in before we get to the text real quick. It's important to get a picture here before us. And, And the picture is a target, actually, because a target was used to illustrate the gospel. And the Apostle Paul referred to the gospel like a target. And when he said to Timothy, hey, beware of Hominius and Philetus because they've strayed concerning the truth. The idea is these guys have like gotten off target. The gospel is a target, bullseye, rings around. And stuff. They've gotten off target. They're leading people away from the target. It's like eyes are going away from where they need to go. Look, Peter, and we're going to study it in just a little bit. I mean, he's the first one to preach the gospel 2,000 years ago in the epicenter of Jewish identity, Jerusalem, the city of the king. He's like laying out the target for us. And, and clearly the bullseye is none other than the person and the work of Jesus. Listen, please hear this. You guys, we're living in very unique times. Would you not agree with that? I mean, I, I told you earlier, I grew up in the South Bay. Okay, my father worked for Mattel Toys. I mean, it's incredible to come back after 27 years. I, I mean, it is incredibly beautiful, diverse, dynamic community. LA's changed a lot during that time. This is a very unique time in which we live. I, I mean, we need to be as accurate as possible with the most important message in the entire universe, which is the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we want to do is we want to go back and we want to study the message that is clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Context is going to be critical. Context, 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 context. Look at verse 22. Check this out. In verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel... Men of Israel, this is 50 days after the resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. What's the next word, you guys? Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've crucified by lawless hands and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, we're going to pause right there. We don't have time to deal with the whole message. But basically so far, what has he addressed? He's addressed Jesus. He's addressed miracles and wonders and signs, the cross, the resurrection. Long story short, you have thousands of Jews hearing this 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And 3,000 end up responding to embrace Jesus Christ. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. And I want, you to, I want it to sink in, Okay. Who, simple question, who is Peter speaking to? I mean, he didn't say, you men of Rome, hear these words. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you, you, you men of the United States, United Nations. No, it was you men of, can someone tell me? Israel. You have hundreds of thousands in Jerusalem for Pentecost, which is actually one of the three major holy days that the Lord required all male Jews to present themselves to the Lord. Historically, this day is the day that the Lord gave Moses the law. I mean, it's like how to know God and who God is and how to worship Him and the law with regard to proper civil behavior in the nation of Israel. And when the Lord gave the law, I mean, like to the day, you know, 13 years prior to this, I mean, you have this activity on Mount Sinai and you have, 
you know, fire and smoke. And well, um, 1,300 years later to the day, you have like fire atop the disciples' heads. I mean, we are talking about actually a tongue of fire that is. We're talking about the ground floor of Christianity here. You know, the chief mission of the church is to make the Lord known. It's to prophesy, which is to foretell the Word of God. And the early church was doing that, being given the gift of tongues, proclaiming the goodness of God in a language they didn't have any formality learning. And then Peter now is stepping up and he's beginning to deliver a very specific message. And listen, this is so important. It is to the men of, tell me again, men of Israel. It's very important that we think very clearly with regard to the subject because Israel is the second greatest subject in the Bible outside the Lord himself. So I want to put some notes up here on the screen. And if we can just go to them, that would be great. Can we bring those notes up? Oh, do we have those notes? Okay, yes. Okay, when you think of Israel, you need to think of three things. Number one, you need to think of a name given to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. Number two, it's up on the screen, uh, Israel is the nation promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Called the children of Israel 644 times, of which 14 usages are in the New Testament. Number three, Israel is a land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And for which Jesus is literally coming back. He's coming back not to Rio de Janeiro. He's not coming back to Lamida, with all due respect. He's coming back to Jerusalem. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay. So in short, hear this. Israel is the land and people that God chose to reveal himself to and that through the entire world would be blessed in the Messiah of Israel. Can you better understand why Peter would say, you men of Israel, hear these words? What is that God raised up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to reveal himself to and through, and that through Israel, the entire world would be blessed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can better understand why Jesus actually positioned the disciples in Jerusalem. He wanted them to wait there. I mean, this is a beautiful holy day, Pentecost. In fact, in the biblical calendar, it's coming up June 11th, actually. So if we go back 2,000 years ago, we're actually between the resurrection of Jesus and when he was making himself known for those 40 days and ultimately to Pentecost, the 50th day, which is actually on on our calendar, aligns with June 11th. I I jotted this down. I want to capture this idea. I know I'm saying a lot. But just hear this carefully. Israel is the elect of God, chosen by God, purposed by God to receive the revelation of himself. And that through which the entire world would be blessed in right relationship with God in the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua, whose person and work was prophetically foreshadowed by the holy days that the Lord called Israel to never forget. So, watch this. You men, okay, this is the context. You men of Israel, speaking to Jews. You, you men of Israel, hear these words. And what does he say? What's the bullseye in this target? It's none other than Jesus himself. The most important issue in life is who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and what you do with who he is and what he accomplished. Can I hear a big amen to that? Let me put it another way. Please hear this. Maybe you're here for the first time. So glad that you joined us. And um, Pastor Jeff will be back. Uh, He'll be back. Okay, but let me just say this. Look, we have no idea why we exist, what the purpose of our life is, unless the one who created us reveals it to us. We have no idea who God is unless he initiates and reveals it to us. That gives perspective as to why Jesus is so important. That gives perspective. Why Peter is saying, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus. Because the Father reached out to us in his Son. Jesus said, this is eternal life. That you might know the true and living God and the Son whom 
He sent. Listen, ultimately, we want our friends, we want people in the South Bay, we want uh, our backyard, this global community, we want our loved ones to be thinking, what am I going to do with Jesus who was called the Christ? That is the most important issue in life. Can I hear another big amen to that? That's the bullseye. It's like you're not right with God, you know, on an opinion or interpretation um, of, you know, the book of Jonah. I mean, that's important. You're not right with God. You don't have your sins forgiven and assurance that when you die, you go to heaven. You're part of the kingdom ultimately, even here on planet Earth. If you take a different view than some Christian who takes a view of a young earth versus an old earth. The most important issue is Jesus. Here's what we've got to understand. We're going to get back to this. Look, when you drop the name of Jesus, when you make Jesus the issue, generally there's some pushback. There's spiritual opposition. Sometimes it evokes a mob mentality, which is so much a part of our culture. Just look at politics. It's so reactive, is it not? On very little information. Come on. And so, look, the chances are, if you drop the name of Jesus, you name Christ, you might get some opposition or some response. And what the person who responds to is not really the real, true Jesus of the Bible. It's some crazy idea that they have in their head. But it's very important that we stay on target. It's very important that we make the issue Jesus. We're going to get back to that. Let's continue to study this. Look, verse 22 continues, attested by God. The Greek word basically means to show, to exhibit, to demonstrate, which is to say that there were divine demonstrations that came forth from the life of Jesus that God did through him. And what does he note? Well, for one, miracles. If you're writing notes, jot this down. There's 37 miracles of Jesus recorded in the Bible. And let me tell you one of the ways that people responded to his miracles it's John seven thirty seven. It says they were astonished beyond measure, saying, and he has done all these things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Here's the thing about that word, that people were astonished. It's, it's like they were awestruck. It, it's <laughs> having this flashback too. I grew up, as I said, in the South Bay. But sometimes my brother would take a towel and he would wind it up like this. And then he would turn it around, and then he would just, you know, and he would like go after my ankles or chase me around, right? And I think I need some therapy. You know, so he would go after and snap it, right? And man, if that's just like you get whipped by a towel, it just like wakes you up, right? You're like, whoa, that is incredible, fully awake. Here's the thing. Jesus is raising the dead. He's walking in water. He's healing people. He is forgiving people of their sins. And people are like, whoa. They are astonished. They're like, my goodness gracious. Now let me tell you, the Lord still is in the miracle business. He is. And let me just say too, you know what? Life is a miracle. I mean, the Lord is a genius. We had a chance to dedicate little Hedura, you know, Sunday morning. I mean, just beautiful five-month-old, feminine, beautiful creation of God, this beautiful baby girl. I mean, I'm a grandfather now. I mean, it's just like, you know, more and more. I told Stephanie the other day, you know, we used to hold our babies. They're born maybe eight pounds or seven or wherever they are, and they mean so much to you. But as you get older, it's like, the weight and the significance of life itself, man. It's like billions of tons. It's like, my goodness, God is a genius. He is awesome. Hey, what do the miracles tell us about Jesus? The miracles of Jesus were by nature divine demonstrations which met temporal and eternal needs. But the purpose of the miracles was also to demonstrate that in Christ all things are made new. That they are foretastes of what he would do with his power. Hey, let's go to the next one. What about wonders? You know, we want to leave here just more confident than ever. You know, wonders, he's saying. That's kind of like a ring around the bullseye. And Jesus is a bullseye. Maybe, you know, Peter's thinking of the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you know that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain? His countenance turned nuclear white. There was a cloud that overshadowed the mountain. 
there was a voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Sounds like a fairy tale, right? Hey, listen, paganism of the day was totally based on mythology. I mean, it's just totally based on subjective, made-up stories and stuff. Here's what, actually, Peter said about that very experience. Even that Moses and Elijah appeared, the two bookends of Judaism. Peter said, I think we have it up on the screen. He said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his, can someone tell me, majesty. Eyewitnesses. Not, this is not mythology. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Which, by the way, culturally, it's like, that's what you say at a bar mitzvah. That's what a father's going to do. He's going to gather his buddies around, put his 13-year-old son on their shoulders, dance around and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, this is public ordination, public affirmation. This is my son. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Man, how do we know that's not some con? I mean, I'll tell you one of the great evidences is all the apostles, save John himself, were martyred for their faith. And listen, people die for lies all the time, but people are not willing to give their life when they know They're giving their life for a lie. Strong evidence it happened. And what about signs? That's what we see next in verse 22. How about the sign of prophecy? I mean, there's 660 general prophecies in the Bible, 30% of the Bible's prophecy, which helps make it the most unique book in history. There's no prophecies in the Hindu Vedas. There's no prophecies in the Book of Mormon. There's no prophecies in the Koran. The Bible says basically tomorrow is as yesterday to the Lord. And Jesus explained to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I think we have it up on the screen, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is actually speaking of the Savior to come. Paul told Timothy, you knew the scriptures that make you wise to salvation. That points us to the need that we have for the Lord. We need help outside of ourselves. Hey, these are big issues. They're, you know, we could spend a lot of time with them. But if you move to verse 23 and verse 24, now you've got the bookends of the work of Jesus. You've got the big issue of the cross and the incredible reality of the resurrection. And you know, if I were to ask you, hey, what is the gospel of Jesus? Well, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we don't have time to do it. I mean, Paul would say the gospel is that Jesus died and was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. Now let me tell you, those are weighty realities in a big-time way. And when Peter says here that Jesus, listen, was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, he is saying that in the mind of the Heavenly Father, he had predetermined a plan to reach out and reveal himself, reveal his love, reveal his justice. Hey, you know the elephant in the room with regard to the crucifixion of Jesus is it took place on Nisan 14, which is Passover, actually. And if I were to ask you, well, you surely know the story of Passover, and what do you remember about the great deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, you remember that, you know, the Lord sent Moses down there and gave instruction to actually apply lamb's blood to the posts of the home. That the Lord would actually go over, the, the, over Egypt and those who were basically did not have atonement for their sins would be judged, the firstborn male and female. So, so, so in other words, actually the way out of enslavement was through a door that was covered in lamb's blood. And, and actually the Bible says that what took place in Egypt was a prophecy. It was merely a rehearsal of a greater redemption that would take place that wouldn't just impact Egypt, it would impact the entire world. 1,300 years later to the day, you are talking Nisan 14, you're talking Passover. Jesus is on the cross. 
I mean, John saw it at the beginning. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the Lord. That's a big monster, you know, terms and stuff. That's so weighty. He's just saying, look, I mean, we, we, have that, we have that regional deliverance in our history, but that was a rehearsal of the greatest deliverance that's in Christ. To, to like, to stop the breakdown and the disintegration and the brokenness. That's what Jesus accomplished for us. And it took place on Passover itself. Oh man, we got to pick some shots here. We got to pick some shots because there's so much to address. But how many of you remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem that the crowds were crying, Hosanna. Raise your hand if you remember that. Just Hosanna. That means save now. It was a part of the Psalms 113 to 118. You know, like, hey, bring the rescue. Hey, Lord, bring the rescue now. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, Lord, bring the rescue. you got a lot of corruption in Jerusalem. The most corrupt man in Jerusalem happens to be the high priest. I mean, we're a conquered people. You know, the emperor of Rome is like, thinks he's God. It, it's like, Lord, please, Lord, deliver us. I mean, Lord, bring the rescue. Okay, all right, well, here's the thing. Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem like an Islamic invader. He didn't come in drawing a sword. It's like, hey, you know what? We're, we're going to bring, we're, we're going to slice and dice and bring, you know, some order here. You know, the, the Lord came into Jerusalem, please hear this, because his concern was the darkness behind the darkness. Oh, the emperor was dark. The high priest was dark. The abuse of women 2,000 years ago was dark. But what he's primarily interested and concerned about was the darkness behind the darkness. The darkness behind the darkness is a broken relationship with God. That's the core problem. He's like, man, I'm going after sin. I'm going after Satan. I'm going after self-management. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 is like a summary of Isaiah 53, which is great messianic prophecy. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. Listen to this, Ephesians 2.14. Now really hone in on this. Paul wrote, he himself is our, can someone tell me, peace, who made both one. Oh, you really got to hear this. Which is another way of saying that at the cross, Jesus made the way for this totally beautiful, diverse world. Remember, we live in a global community with all of its potential differences to be in harmony with one another. He took Jew and he took Gentile. He took Jew and the, and the non-Jewish world. And at the cross and in himself, he creates a new man. Let me say it a different way. Let me tell you what Jesus did at the cross. He killed arrogance. He killed pride. He killed self-sufficiency. He killed racism. He said, what are you talking about? Because, let me tell you, at the cross, we're all on equal footing. Because the cross tells us that God is perfectly just and holy. And who we really are begins from the inside out. And, and the reality is beyond our skin, whatever your skin tone is. I didn't choose to be white, you know. But I mean, it's just like, okay, but beyond that, it's like who you really are is who you are from the inside out. That the cross tells us that God is perfectly just and holy. And, and as the moral gun of the universe, he must respond to it. And I, like all of us, we, every single one of us, are on equal footing at the cross. We all need forgiveness. We all need help outside of ourselves. Can I hear a big amen to that? And watch how this works. Paul said this, May I never boast, in some translation read glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. And glory carries the idea of weight and significance and value. And if one's glory is in any other than the cross, then peace is gone. That's why Jeremiah said, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. I mean, just, hey man, don't, just don't be so heavy about you know, the, the knowledge or your intelligence or you think you're all that, you know. Let, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glory glory in this, that he understand and knows me. Because here's the thing, please hear this, okay? If you glory, if it's like, hey man, I went to this school and I got these grades, if you glory in your academia, if you glory in your physicality, 
If you glory in your materialism, your trophies, your family, your ethnicity, ethnicity it promotes feelings of support, superiority over others, and the peace is gone. See, the genius plan of the Lord to create a new man in himself, it's not going to come through political means. I'm not trying to take a stupid little cheap shot. It's not going to come through political means. Jesus nailed it when he said, you must be born again. He just, he just that's it. you got to be born again. Big, small, black, white, homosexual, non, you have to be born again. Okay, here's the thing. If my glory, is everybody understand? If I'm like, oh man, I am this or that, academic, intelligent, strong, handsome. Well, if that's your glory, if that's the significance of your life, it breeds superiority. You look down upon others. It's like, man, Lord, you rescued Greg Denham. You rescued me. You ran me down. Who am I but a man rescued by your grace? Right? That produces love for the Lord and for my fellow man. What about the resurrection? i got to cut to the quick. The resurrection is Jewish history, you guys. The only reasonable explanation for a group of Jews to follow Jesus as the Messiah was overwhelming evidence that he had bodily risen from the dead. Look, they knew he had been executed by the Romans. I mean, there's no way any Jew in Jerusalem is going to follow Jesus who was crucified in Jerusalem unless they were absolutely convinced of bodily resurrection. It had to be bigger than hallucinations, bigger than visions, bigger than I think I heard his voice. Listen, without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, there would be no Christianity. Paul said this in Romans. He said, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That means he's alive. Heard a story about a guy, he's like in quicksand, he's about ready to die. And Confucius comes up and he's just like, man, Confucius, can you help me out and stuff? And Confucius said, well, the lesson here is don't walk around quicksand and walked away. You know, it's just like, you got to learn your lesson. Well, gee, thanks. And then you had Buddha who showed up and he said, I'm not so sure if I can determine whether this is good or bad, kind of yin or yang thing, but we can learn from these experiences. Like, thanks, man, but you know, I'm sinking and stuff. Krishna shows up and he said, well, better luck next time, you know, reincarnation type of thing. But then Jesus showed up, reached down and pulled that guy out of the pit. Because that's what the Lord does. And there's nothing too great for him. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's true. Okay, listen, I I just want to ask, has the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, brought the truth of who he is afresh to your hearts? Do you have a greater sense of confidence? Look up here for a second. Jesus is the bullseye. Miracles, wonders, signs, cross, resurrection, change lives. We keep going. The, The ascension needs to be there as well. All of those evidences that tell us who Jesus is. If I reject the bullseye, i got to re-explain all those evidences. That's very, very difficult to do. Do you have a greater sense of confidence? I hope so. Okay, so let's now focus on bringing the truth to this generation. And hang in there. We'll just be here a couple more hours, okay? No, just kidding. All right. Let me just say this. This is important. Look, every generation, you guys, has issues. Every generation, when you drop the name of Jesus and you preach the gospel, there are certain realities that are going to come to the surface. We need to be aware of that. 2,000 years ago, you preach Christ to a Jew, and he's thinking, well, I, I wish he had met my expectations more politically. And yet the response is, hey, he's, behind, he's after the darkness behind the darkness. It's genius. That's how he's building his kingdom. He's capturing and recapturing and winning hearts. He's changing men and women from the inside out. And ultimately, his kingdom materializes on planet Earth. But if you were to speak to a Greek, if you were to speak to a philosopher 2,000 years ago, talk about Jesus, they're like, my goodness gracious, moronic, man. It's foolish. 
It's like you're telling me there's a one-stop wonder of revelation that God revealed himself and, and this is righteousness and this is wisdom. And so that would be offensive to them. Today it's different. And I have a big idea up here um, that we can just jump to that big idea. Thank you guys. You guys are awesome. And here's the big idea I just want to develop, and that is we need to understand the cultural and generational issues that arise alongside of the subject of Jesus without losing the chief objective, which is to point people to Christ. In other words, we must be careful not to get lost in the ABCs, anything but Christ. In short, we need to learn to handle these cultural and generational subjects, refocus the listener to the person and work of Jesus. I'll give you an example. I might say, hey man, have you ever considered Christ? Well, you know, there's so many stinking hypocrites in the church. I had a bad experience. Hey, let me just tell you something. Jesus never said, follow those who say they follow me. He said, follow me. You know, it's like, I need to get you from that issue, which is okay, I got it, it's a concern. Maybe answer a little bit, but get you back, focus on who Jesus is. Are you guys tracking with that idea right there? Okay? Because there's not a more important issue than Jesus. It's about Him. Who is He? We don't want to veer off the target and just get all these peripherals. We want to just, okay, okay, all right, I got that. I've got to help you a little bit with that. I want you to get back. I want you to get back on the bullseye. That's what Peter's doing. One of the most common objections, pushbacks to Jesus, if you're jotting down notes, just jot this down, is exclusivity or narrowness. I mean, it's the idea that the greatest and most important issue in life, which is the Lord Jesus, is at the same time the greatest criticism of Christianity. It's too narrow. It's, it's like, you know, some people say bigoted or mindless. And you guys, remember, we're in a global community here. I mean, we are speaking to the world living in Los Angeles. This is an issue. Now, some even say who can determine what beliefs are right and wrong. And the implication is it can't be determined. And if that's the case, why should I believe the one who says it can't be determined? Or, you know, if someone says, you know, you can't really know what's right or wrong, then why should I believe you? Because you're promoting a belief that, you know, you can't really know what's right versus wrong. Here's the thing. Is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that the Son of God, God the Son, He's the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except to be through Him, is that an exclusive or narrow belief? Of course it is. Just as really any belief is narrow, any position that one takes is narrow. You say, well, Greg, being so emphatic about Jesus, it just doesn't work in our global or secular or technological uh, world and community. And people are becoming more, uh, less, or I should say less religious, not more religious. Here's perspective. This is very important. Look, everyone, everyone is religious. It's true. You say, no, no, not everyone believes in God. That's true. Buddhists do not believe in God. But here's what I mean by the fact that everyone is religious. Everyone has a worldview of interpreting the past, the present, and the future. Everyone has values. Everyone has their loyalties. Everyone has some sense of perspective or storyline to interpret their existence and interpret past, present, and future, even an atheist. So it's impossible really to do away with religion as religion is a set of beliefs that explains what life is all about. What we need to do is evaluate what we believe and why we believe it. We owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our children, we owe it to our generation and our maker, because ultimately we're all responsible for what we believe. Think about this. If you haven't heard anything up to this point, on this point, I want you to hear this. When you embrace the Lord Jesus, it's like, okay, he's the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except it be through me. It's a loaded idea, loaded truth. He didn't say I am a way, a truth, a life. The way, the truth, the life. You embrace that narrow view or exclusive view. Here's what ends up happening. It broadens and broadens and explodes your heart in love and compassion and empathy towards your fellow man. 
So you've got to ask, what do people's beliefs produce in their life? And I can just say, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, as I've gotten older, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, my heart actually has been recaptured by Him and has become more broadened in love towards my fellow man. That I would love and show compassion and empathy and care for this individual because that is just the right thing. Because that is a value in and of itself. Look, following Jesus flushes out two accepted lies in our culture. And the first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. And the second is that to love someone means you have to agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You do not have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Can I hear a big amen to that? Let me tell you another big issue that's going to come up. That's same-sex attraction and marriage and homosexuality. Here's the thing. 2,000 years ago, it was rampant in Greek and Roman culture, rampant. And it wasn't based upon the notion that, you know, that, that's the disposition or that is kind of the genetic, genetic makeup of the individual. It was because of modeling and lifestyle. It's not a pleasant subject, but let me tell you, like 17 New Testament books out of 27 that were written, I mentioned this Sunday morning, Uh, were written during a time where Nero was the emperor in Rome. He had been married twice, both to men, okay? When Paul wrote Romans, just think about that. First chapter, he's just saying, man, man has turned away from God. His mind has become darkened. And the first sin he's addressing is the breakdown of sexual relations. He's addressing same-sex realities there, which speaks of how a culture is experiencing a radical breakdown. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, hey, such were some of you. I mean, 2,000 years ago, the lines of sensuality and sexuality basically didn't exist. And, and more and more, we are living in a generation like our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. It's true. And we have a great opportunity if we know the source of our strength and we stay on target with the gospel of Jesus. Can I hear another amen to that? Let me say a couple things about this issue. First of all, no human being is ever to be demeaned or devalued. No derogatory name calling should ever be in a Christian's mouth. Think of what Paul said. This is a faithful saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners in whom I am chief, he said. It's like cut out any derogatory terminology towards those who are different or whatever or same sex. Never in our mouth. Number two, look, here's the thing. We live in a broken world. Sin has impacted every facet of life down to the DNA. There are no perfect genes. There's no perfect chromosomes, parents, societies, even churches. Number three, genetics explains my inclinations but does not excuse wrong choices or sin. So I can have inclination and disposition, but man, have you ever heard of delayed gratification? There's wisdom in that. And number four, every human being, whether same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction, listen, needs to be born again. So look, in our family, I have uncles who have same-sex attraction and things. The chief issue is not, hey, I want you to be heterosexual, man. That's not the chief issue, the first issue. Look, I I want you to be born. I want you to know the Savior. We all need Him. That's where it begins. You need a Savior. You need your sins again. You need to be born again. You need a new nature. You need the power of resurrection. Can I hear a big amen to that? Now listen, does He change our minds? Yeah. Does He change our minds? Does He change our lives? Sure He wants to. Because listen, sin is no friend of anyone. Sin leads to decay. If there's a lie, does it lead to breakdown? Yes. If there's injustice, does it lead to breakdown? Yes. If there's, if there's sex outside of God's prescribed boundaries, does it lead to a breakdown? Yes. There's consequences of decisions. Sin is no friend of any of us, and thank God He came to save sinners. And the fifth thing is just remember, for God so loved the, can someone tell me, 
world. Man, he gave his only begotten son I love as my favorite verse. Whosoever believe in him will not perish, perish, break down, but have everlasting life. Let me say one more thing, and then I'm going to wrap some things up. Look, here's what we're also going to face. There's 600,000 precious Jewish friends in Los Angeles. You know, Romans 1, 16 and 17 says the gospel is the power of God, first for the Jew, then the Gentile. Here's like one of the biggest overstatements in the world. Jews do not believe in Jesus. That's a, that's a real big broad brush there. That's like saying all Jews believe in Torah. They're both actually gross exaggerations. Of course not all Jews believe in Jesus, but to imply that Christianity is some other religion that Jews do not embrace is one of the biggest blind spots in history. First 15 years of the faith in Jesus in Jerusalem, man, it was like 95% Jews. The New Testament was entirely written by Jews. Except Luke, who was a doctor. She's probably a Jew. No, I'm just kidding. All right, no, I'm just kidding. Um, did you get that? All right. That was dumb. All right. Sorry. The very concept of a Messiah is nothing but Jewish. Yeshua himself was Jewish, and I think still is. It was Jesus who brought, or excuse me, it was Jews who brought the gospel to Gentiles. I mean, Paul, the chief apostle to the Gentiles, was an observant Jew all of his life. The point is this. We just need to tell our Jewish friends, man, you're not selling out. Your heritage, your roots, uh, your DNA to embrace the Lord Jesus, you're actually completing it. Jesus is the most important Jewish influence that there has ever been in history or ever will be. Can I hear a big amen to that? Let me ask you something. Here we've been talking about the target. The plan of the Father in Christ is awesome. It could be said the Father thought it, Jesus bought it, the Holy Spirit brought it. This plan is awesome. This plan is the answer for all of us. This plan tells us that there's a God in heaven who loves us, wants the best for us, loves us enough not to leave us the way we are. And it, and it tells us that he's a perfect gentleman as well because Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. That's a metaphor. I mean, does it mean we have doors in our hearts? Of course not. It's, it's a metaphor. It's, but, it, but, but what the Lord is saying is, is that, look, the Lord loves you and he's trying to get your attention. You were made to know the Heavenly Father. You, you were made to have right relationship with the one who made you. And, and if that is not at play in one's life, it's kind of a vertical issue. It throws everything off on a horizontal level. You know, Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me. Oh man, there's a big God-shaped hole that only Jesus can fill. It's true. The darkness behind the darkness is brokenness. Jesus brings wholeness. He brings right relationship with the Lord. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. Basically, there's no middle ground. I mean, where do you stand tonight? I mean, years ago, I was presented with an opportunity to open the door of my heart and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And man, I could just feel the squeeze. And, and yet I knew it, that he was calling me. I sensed my need for him. And I'm so glad by the grace of God that I prayed and invited him to be Lord and God and Savior in my life. Let me just ask you, have you done that? Because he really is just a prayer way. It's true. You say, Greg, what are you, what are you getting at? Well, what I'm getting at is there comes a time in each one of our lives that we need to make a decision for the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, leaving here tonight, would you have the absolute assurance that you're right with the Heavenly Father and His Son? Would you have the absolute assurance your sins are forgiven? You have hope beyond the grave? Because I mean, I'm here to tell you, you can. It's true. And what you're really, really looking for is the Lord. And He's here. And He wants to come into your life. In a few moments, I'm actually going to give you an opportunity if you would like to receive Christ. And, and then we're going to transition a little bit. I want us to pray as a church family. But let's, let's bow our heads 
and close our eyes just for a moment here. How many of you would say, Greg, you know, tonight I, I want my eternity settled. I, I, I want to know my sins are forgiven. This idea that I'm either for or against Christ, well, I can't say I'm totally for Him. I haven't opened the door of my heart and embraced Him as my Savior and Lord. Listen, He really is just a prayer away. The Bible says those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. And I want to ask, church family, be in an attitude of prayer, those to your right, to your left, behind you. And I just want to ask, while, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, how many of you would say, you know, Greg, tonight I want to receive Christ. I, I, I want to leave here knowing that I'm right with the Lord. I want that settled. If that's you, I want you to raise up your hand right now. Let me pray for you. Just slip up your hand. God bless you. I see you back there. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you in the back. There's many hands that are going. You're, listen, if you're sensing that's me, you're not going to be alone because there's many hands that are going. God bless every single one of you. Anybody else, you just raise up your hand. Let me pray for you. In the front, in the back. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless every one of you. So precious. All right, listen, here's what I'm going to do. My precious ones that raised your hand, I want to lead you in a word of prayer right now. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to stand where you're seated. Just stand up. Stand up. Stand up even right now. And I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. Nothing to be ashamed of. Stand up even right now. God bless you. You're not going to be alone, you guys. Stand up. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? There's others. Well, wait. You stand up. I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. I'll tell you why I want you to stand. Because Jesus said, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. It's like getting married. I mean, it's not done in privacy, you know. Take a stand. Man, I, I did years ago. I didn't regret it. Anybody else, you just stand to your feet. Nothing to be ashamed of. You are amidst people who love you and care for you. Anybody else? I just want to make sure you just stand up. I'm going to lead you in a word. God bless everyone. In just these final moments, anybody else? I want to make sure. You precious ones that are standing, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And this is a prayer of asking the Lord to come into your life and forgive you of your sins. You mean it, the Lord will totally honor it. So pray this prayer with me out loud. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. I know I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for dying for me, paying the debt of my sin, raising from the dead and now coming into my life. I turn to you this day. Give me the strength to follow you, to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen.